One, it's the most minor of prophets. We'll be in Obadiah, and then the book after Obadiah, Micah, this morning. You go, why those two books? Glad you asked. We are going through the Bible this year at a um, very fast pace. And so to fit 66 books into 52 weeks, we are compressing some. And so Obadiah and Micah, it will be this morning. You go, well, why not Jonah? Because Jonah... Uh, couples well with Nahum, and you will see why next week, right? So Anthony's going to be teaching those two together. As far as announcements go, uh, first, if you are or have somebody in the junior high to high school range, youth is meeting tonight uh, at the Garcias. If you need any information, see Anthony um, for that. We, they, we went to Grass, no, it wasn't Grasshopper, it was the Beaver, Beaver Creek. Um, and nobody died. And so, if you, and Anthony and I were marveling that it's been 20 plus years of him doing this and, and everybody's gotten out. So, um, there's just like, what, a rolled ankle and a little bit of tears. But, but I was okay. So, after all that. Um, young adults will be meeting this Thursday. If you need information, see Silas. He's in kids today. Or let me know, and I'll get you in contact with Silas. And then uh, the book fairy arrived again this morning with a new round of books. If you are newer to Union, it doesn't take long to find out that uh, some of us are nerds and enjoy reading. And so uh, we have A Praying Life by Paul Miller. If you're looking uh, for more information, help, and just perspective on prayer, that book made me cry on a plane to Miami one time. Uh, that was a weird... Uh, his little chapter on cynicism. Praying Life is there, Prodigal God by Tim Keller, uh, and then Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing by Sally Lloyd-Jones for you parents is back there as well. And then I think in the next week we're going to get a bunch of books called The Secular Creed that the youth group's going through as well. So if you'd like to read through a book, uh, they're there, they're free, they're for you to be blessed and grow in your discipleship with Jesus. And then before we get into the text, I, I was talking with Anthony, I was back and forth on whether or not to address the, the whole Supreme Court decision on Friday, overturning Roe versus Wade. And I don't have um, anything mapped out, which is somewhat usual for me, uh, if you haven't noticed already, other than, than this, at least in my heart and my head, uh, that it is increasingly exhausted to live in a divisive world. And as Christians, there's a unique opportunity this last Friday, to continue the work that has already been started by Christians since the first century. If you look throughout church history, you've seen that core to the Christian faith has been care for everyone out of a belief in the image of God. So the image of God says that everybody is made in his image, therefore is worthy of dignity and value. Anybody, anywhere, regardless of anything. And then the, the cliche is from womb, to tomb. And what happened on Friday, there's, at least if your social media feed is anything like mine, it is a total mixed bag of people raging and people celebrating. And what I believe Christians and we, as God's people, are called to do is continue the work that we've already been doing. If you're in Prescott, uh, you're probably aware of the Community Pregnancy Center. Marianne, Josh's wife, who's one of our elders, is on the board and and it's work that continues to happen. And there is the, the trope that, oh, Christians only care about them in the womb. And then once a baby comes out, you don't care. And it's like, that's not true. 
That's why CPC exists. It's not, oh, the baby's here and then we're done helping. No, it's this whole system. And again, that's what our lives are called to be, is poured out for the sake of people. And so I don't know where you find yourself in this room, if you're just tired, if you're celebrating, if you're frustrated, whatever. But our call is to follow Jesus and serve and love people here. And that work continues. So with that, Anthony's going to come up. He's going to read Obadiah, portion of Obadiah, portion of Micah, and then we'll get to it. Okay. Obadiah, one through four. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, as a me- and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise up against her uh, for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall, utterly, you shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who lived in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. In Micah chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. This is the word of the Lord. And Father, we thank you for your word and your power and promise that we have seen over time. God, uh, as the world continues to um, kind of shake and teeter, it's good to know that you sustain it all. And today we pray that as we look at your word and as we understand who you are and and what you do in this world, may we find great peace in understanding your character in a deeper way. Lord, we pray that you would be with uh, John this morning as he brings brings your word. I pray that he would um, he would he would really um, the words of his heart and the and the meditations of his mind would truly reflect. Um, what your heart is for, for us today. And so, God, we love you and we thank you, and uh, we give all this uh, to your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. If you want an alliterated title, it is Pressing Questions and Promised King. We're continuing all the way through July in the Minor Prophets, and if you were with us last week, then uh, you will have heard from Anthony uh, that the minor prophets, he said, were covenant watchdogs. And I don't know about you, in my mind uh, came up uh, McGruff, the crime dog. You know, the bloodhound with his collar up, kind of looking from the side. 
That's what I saw. And he compared them to boy bands, which I didn't find particularly helpful. So I'm going with the Avengers. We're changing a little bit uh, there. That each minor prophet takes uh, on a different time, brings about different tasks, ad addresses different troubles. And so today, Obadiah is about pressing questions. Micah is about a promised king. Obadiah, being the shortest, is getting assigned, he's the, the Tom Holland Spider-Man, because he's the shortest, and Tom Holland's five foot six. Google told me. So, his 21 verses address the Edomites, of which everybody said, oh yeah, of course, the Edomites. Who? I'm glad you asked, because we're going to do a deep dive on the Edomites this morning. If you go all the way back to Genesis, you see the patriarch Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac and his wife Rebecca have twins, Jacob and Esau, and it's basically prophesied from the womb that these two are going to provide one another with trouble. And like brothers do, there is adversity. And like unhealthy brothers, that's all the way through the ages. It doesn't go so well with Jacob and Esau. Esau sells his birthright, uh, for a pot of, of stew, one translation, I think it's the old King James that I particularly, a bowl of red, and Esau himself is red. Um, he goes off and marries a Canaanite, which was a no-no, and that people, Esau and his descendants, become known as the Edomites. Edomite means red. And there's conversation whether that's because of Esau's complexion, because of the bowl of stew that he sold his birthright for, or just because of the color of the rocks in the area. Sedona-like, I guess. Well, they continue, and adversity continues happening. But it seems as though, as the story continues, that God's heart between these two people, what becomes the Israelites and Jacob's descendants and Esau and the Edomites, is not hostility. In fact, is the Israelites are delivered out of slavery and are coming to the land of the Edomites. Here's what God says in Deuteronomy chapter number 2. He says, command the people... You are about to pass through the territory of your brothers, the people of Esau, who live in Seir, and they will be afraid of you. So be very careful. Do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of your foot to tread on, because I've given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. And so God's heart is, you're going to be crossing paths. I know it's hostile. That's not your land. Don't do it. Well, as the years go on, it's a good start from there. But in Numbers chapter 20, Israel asks the king of Edom at the time for passage, and he says, no. They say, well, please, we're just going to only travel through the king's highway. We aren't even looking if we use any water or food. We'll pay for it completely. And he says, no. So that's not great. They are enemies, and as you look through Samuel, uh, or really King's Chronicles, you see fighting and wars that happen between the two. Then, in 586 BC, the Israelites are fleeing Babylonian captivity. They're coming into the land of Edom, and the Edomites capture the Israelites and turn them over to the Babylonians. Not only that, but then some move into the vacant houses that were left in these villages. They take possession and take advantage of the opportunity that was presented to them. So this event 
and many others provoke some pressing questions for God's people. What's going to happen to the Edomites? And I want to say, just as a side note, that it is, within the Christian faith, it's a very safe place to ask questions, to have wrestlings with God. I know there's this old saying, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And while there's some truth contained in that statement, I also don't think that it fully captures the wrestling that we see all throughout Scripture of God's people contending with God in the midst of difficulty, doubt, situations like this. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, questions will come inevitably. And yes, the ultimate authority for our lives is Jesus and his word, but often it can take some time to get there. And so we're going to see three questions addressed in Obadiah. First, who's in charge? Two, can anybody get away with anything? And three, is there hope in life? First, who's in charge? Seeing all of this unfold, God's people being trampled, taken advantage of, handed over to captivity, it's not just the Babylonians, but these enemies, the Edomites, are messing with them too. And here's what we see as Anthony just read in verse 1. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger who has been sent among the nations, rise up, let us rise against her for battle. So immediately, as Obadiah catches this vision and begins speaking to God's people, he's introducing them to a truth that I'm sure they had heard before but needed to hear again. And it is this, God sees, God hears, and God speaks. Now, given their circumstances... It may not seem that way. But as we read from, I believe it was Psalm 99 in the very beginning, and again, the opening of this book, as it is true with many of the prophets, God's people need constant remembrance to bring about reorientation in our lives. The, the phrase is we get spiritual amnesia. We are forgetful with who God is, how he's worked, and how he's working in the present world. So Obadiah introduces God's people again with this truth. God hears, God sees, and God speaks. He's still on the throne, though the situation and perspective that they're encountering seem otherwise. And what happens when we remember that? It ought to reorient our hearts. And when our hearts are reoriented, something is produced. Trust and patience. And if you're anything like me, which hopefully not too much similarities here, but what we need most often in life is remembrance that brings reorientation. What we need is not so much always a change of our circumstances, but a change of our perspective. What we need is trust and we need patience. And remembering that God is in charge, preaching that truth to our hearts. He is the God who sees, who hears, who speaks, brings that, sometimes slowly, but surely. Obadiah then helps further. If God's in charge and the Edomites have done this, what's going to be the consequence? Can anybody get away with anything? And if you're familiar with the Psalms, so many times, again and again and again, the Psalms address this conundrum. God... Okay, you say you hear, you see, you speak, but are you really seeing what's going on here? Because this is ridiculous. Your enemies, idolaters, all these people, they're, they're running ham wild crazy in the world. And it seems like 
there's no repercussion for any of that. The answer, not only does God see, hear, and speak, but he's the judge and will act. Later in Obadiah, verses 13 through 15, it says this. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Again, he's correcting the Edomites. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Why? For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Not only do we need the posture of trust and patience and remembering who God is, but if he's the judge and he's going to act, what that ought to bring to God's people is rest. It brings rest. When you remember in scriptures that God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay it slows our roll, settles us down, and gives us a little bit of breathing room. So often we run tense, we run frustrated, we run angry because we think we have to act, we have to correct, we have to move, we have to change. And that's exhausting. Now, does God call us to act? Yes. Does he call us to work? Yes. Does he call us to be about his business and his world? Sure. But ultimately, when we forget that it's God who's ultimately going to work and, and correct and judge through history, again, we can do all of that with open hands and full hearts. So God promises he's going to act. And one of these days, we're going to do a deep dive on the day of the Lord, not necessarily today. But what I was reminded of this week is God makes these promises he's going to act, and he does. He, he says he's going to deal with the Edomites, and he does. But you know how long it takes? It's close to 700 years. From 586 on, God does act. And history shows us the Edomites are eventually driven out by the, and again, Internet can be helpful for these things. By the Nabataeans, their name Edomites is changed later to the Greek Idumeans. You can, uh, to quote Mark Norman, give it a goog. Uh, you fast forward, in 70 AD, the Idumeans partnered together with the Israelites in revolt against Rome. They joined the Israelite rebellion against Rome, and they are completely and utterly destroyed. The Edomites in 70 AD. Which brings then, again, the question, if God's in charge and he's going to act, but sometimes that acting takes 700 years, is there hope? And the hope is, the answer is yes, because God will triumph. And I want to say it's not ever in our timeline. It's often not in our timeline, but it's probably never in, I mean, maybe it's been in your timeline my experience a little different. God will triumph, but it's not on our timeline or in our way. But as Obadiah closes, he says this, the kingdom, Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The whole story of scripture shows us how God is working to bring his presence to be together with his people in his place, and we find that in Jesus. 
And when we see God's promise and we see God's story and we see God's timeline, that can bring about hope in our hearts. Pastor and author uh, A.J. Swoboda says this. He's in Portland. Hope is taking in your real-life situation and finding God smack dab in the midst of it. And I don't know that our natural tendency is to do that. Our natural tendency often is towards worry. It's towards fear. It's towards control. It's towards taking things into our own hands Trusting ourselves, But when we're reoriented by scripture, when we see God, his story, his plan, his way, hope is placed not by changing circumstances, not by uh, fixing everything, but finding God in the midst of it. Because for God's people then, and for us today, life, enemies, evil will continue to run rampant and leave us feeling ragged. And what we need most often is fuel in order to move forward. That's one of the like, minor lessons I've learned through the years of running. You need fuel to move forward. And if you're going to move forward with any sense of purpose, with any sense of strength, you need fuel. And hope really is that fuel that provides forward motion for God's people. And it arrives in and through the questions that we have. It doesn't diminish the real happenings in the real world around us and the questions that the future might bring, but it gives us a vision for the present. And that's ultimately what Obadiah does, is show God who's in charge, God who speaks and will act, a God who gives hope when the outside and the enemies seem to be having victory. Now, it's kind of a rapid shift of gears to Micah because we move from the questions that we have of God when outsiders seem to be uh, all-powerful and providing pain to a message that enters into the house of God. Again, Obadiah shows how God knows what's going on and will act against enemies and oppressors. Micah brings us back into the house, into the family, and he speaks truth there. In Micah, we see what happens and what God has to say when God's people have lost their distinction in the midst of the world, when there's no difference between God's people and the world. And uh, since I know you're wondering, well, what Avenger is he? I'm going with Blade. Eric Brooks, according to the internet that I was researching this morning, his destiny is to hunt and destroy those who prey on humanity and rid the world of evil. I go, sure present Marvel character. He's on the Avengers. Didn't know that either. Blade. Micah. Apparently, neither of us are winning with boy bands or Avengers, so you go back to the drawing board and figure that out by next week, buddy. <laughs> the book of Micah contains three cycles and waves that promise judgment and show hope. Micah is, is really a, this is crude, but it, it's a one-two punch. There's judgment and there's hope in three cycles or waves. You wonder, well, what was going on? Here's the problem. Micah chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them. 
and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster, from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. What happened is God's people had come upon power and prosperity by evil, wicked means. John Marsh, in his commentary, says this, In Micah's time, as in our own, this development led to a few rich people getting richer, not simply at the same time as the poor getting poor, but at the expense of the poor. You see that in verse 1 through 3 of chapter 2. It has been and will continue to be a major political and economic debate whether increasing affluence necessarily produces these disparities. For Micah, there was no debate, only denunciation. His book, in common with most Old Testament prophets, makes it plain that in both Judah and Israel, the fabric and foundation of national life were being systematically threatened. So again, what was going on is that prosperity and power sinfully held was leading to oppression. It came from oppression and was leading to further oppression. Man, what I have to say is that power is not by its nature evil. Prosperity by its nature is not evil. But when they're sinfully held, it always leads to oppression. And scripture shows us here that God cares about all of life, even economics. Diane Langberg, in her book, uh, Redeeming Power, says no system that carries oppression, silencing, dehumanizing, violence, abuse, and corruption within is healthy, no matter how godly the goals of that system may be. Tolerance of such things out of fear, disbelief, or self-deception will not protect the system from the disease that will kill it if left untreated. This is what was going on then. This is what's going on now. And Micah shows that what had happened is evil and then hones in in his next cycle on the leadership. In chapter 3 through 5 in a half-ish, he shows that the leadership is corrupt, that leaders are called to account, and judgment will meet them. And then in the midst of that, Micah isn't all doom and gloom, but what we find is this promise that Anthony read of one who will come from an unlikely place. Micah chapter 5 verse 4 shows us how this one will lead and rule. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth. And then verse 5, he shall be their peace. That one is coming, one is promised. It says from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, a little old town, part of a little old family in Judah that one is going to come. Then you go, Okay, that sounds great. God is aware of the evil. God is aware of the oppression. Great, there's a promise. One's going to come from a little old town. Oh, little town of Bethlehem. Da, 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 da. Guess how long it takes? It's about 700 years. But then we see how God will work through this one, as we read in verse 4. 
Notice the metaphor God uses of Messiah. And there's multiple. We need all of them. But one of the primary ones that God uses is that of a shepherd. The primary role of Messiah is that he's going to shepherd his people. That metaphor is then passed on to the leaders in the church. And and you see that this Messiah will have strength and majesty. He's going to be the type of one that elicits awe and wonder. There's this kind of magnetism and gravitas that he will have. But then what is produced from that is so foreign to what we often experience from leadership. Strength and majesty, sure, but that brings security and peace. Again, I I don't know your experience with important, powerful people. It's often not that they bring about security and peace. Again, I'm not saying this about everyone, but so often people in power get there by oppression, get there by bullying. Oh, but she's such a great speaker. Oh, but they're so good at this, that, or the other. Again, it's like using ungodly means for so-called godly ends, and we go, oh, that's the world. This isn't Jesus. He's got all the majesty. He has all of the glory. He has all the strength, all the power, and he uses that for the good of his people. Rene Padilla, who's a South American theologian, he says, God's kingdom of justice and peace is not wrought by the love of power, but by the power of love. And you can cue the song. God's kingdom of justice and peace is not wrought by the love of power, but by the power of love. And for me personally, this is what is so compelling about the biblical story and Christ's work in the gospel, is that it is not human. Humans don't roll this way. Because our hearts are bent perpetually towards selfish ends and selfish means. We don't operate this way naturally. Where humans are, there's heartbreak. And so if you've been in any system, any structure where humans are involved, there comes heartbreak. But in seeing the plan of God, in trusting his will, his way, there's a change that can be brought about in life, in community, in humanity. Because on paper, this doesn't add up. To submit to this king and allow Jesus and God to reorient our hearts, not to be built on a love of power, not to be built on a love of wealth, but to be reoriented in the midst of the world is something supernatural. Because again, economically, we live with the lies that security comes through accumulation. Security comes through having more, which again leads to selfishness. In oppression. But Jesus brings a counter to that. He says that we gain our lives by losing them. He warns frequently of the dangers that our heart have when being tied to money and possessions. I don't know how long you've been in church. I've often heard a pastor then talking about, Jesus talks more about money than anything, and it's like, well, kind of. He talks about the heart more than money. 
And that's his lesson in it all. And often, again, and, and I say this a little bit to my vocation shame, that uh, pastors love this topic because then it's like, we're going to make people feel guilty and we're going to get more money. Which, let's see how this goes. I've been in systems and structures where that's the case. Yes, the Bible talks about money. Yes, Jesus warns about how our hearts are tied to money and the warnings behind it. But what Jesus is after is so much more, and what I believe the church ought to be after is so much more than just dollars and cents, but about the heart. Now, some of you, you hear this warning that Micah is giving against wealth and, and possessions, and, and Jesus echoes a lot of that, and you go, well, oh, great, I'm poor, so I can just tune out until we pray, and I'll take communion, and we're good. But again, what we have to realize is that we live in an age of uh, extraordinary wealth, that if you are an adult that makes more than $20,000 a year, you are in the top 10% of earners globally, and you go, shoot, I'm probably more rich than I think, and I understand cost of living, all of that. But what we need to see is, is and operate out of is not that we have so little, but how much we have been given here today and in the place and the time that we find ourselves in. And the solution to the tendencies that our heart have towards money, and what the Bible doesn't, the Bible doesn't say the solution to hearts tied to money is poverty, but taking the warnings of Jesus and scripture as a whole and applying them to life. There's one pastor who I heard years ago gave a helpful kind of four categories, that there's ways in which people can be righteous and wealthy or unrighteous and wealthy. There's ways in which people can be uh, righteous and poor, unrighteous and poor. And, and if you want more on that, do a deep dive on Proverbs and, again, the teachings of Jesus. Proverbs would teach that you can be poor because you're lazy, certainly, but then you go, that obviously can't apply to everybody because Jesus, who didn't sin, was homeless. So to call every single poor person lazy, yeah, you're kind of mocking our Messiah, so don't do that. Can happen. You can be poor by righteous means, by unrighteous means. What about wealth? Same thing. Uh, you can be wealthy and righteous. You can be wealthy and unrighteous. I think there's a, a clarifying question we all need to ask is how did we get there and what are we doing with it? How did we get where we are when it comes to our finances and what are we doing with that? Untethering the heart, what scripture would say the main two practices that untethered the heart to being, uh, making an idol out of wealth and possessions is generosity and simplicity. Are you able to practice simplicity? Are you able to practice generosity? Are you giving regularly and sacrificially? Again, this is my, my on-ramp to give a, a big diatribe about tithing and the church first, and I think a, a thing can be made there. 
But, but what I'll say, because those waters are really murky too, and a lot of that has been uh, mistaught, misused, and abused, well, I just say that, ask this question, are you being generous? Just period. What does generosity look like in your life? If it's simply hoarding and only for you, I believe Jesus has a corrective word for you. Practice generosity to untether your heart from money. Two, are you able to practice simplicity? Are, are you leaning into the biblical call to contentment in a world that is really propped up by all of us being discontent perpetually? I mean, that's, if, it'd be interesting what would happen to the world economic systems if Christians practiced contentment across the board. It'd probably crumble. But are you, in your life, practicing simplicity and generosity? Again, I don't say all that to say, uh, well, here's some new religious hoops that you need to jump through. No, because obviously God isn't concerned simply with religion. And it says so in Micah. These are the most famous verses in Micah chapter 6, 6 through 8. It says, what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression of the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Basically going, what can I do to make the problem right? Do I just give it all over to God? Do I just go into the temple, make all these sacrifices? And Micah says, remember, he has told you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. That's the path for God's people in life with him. If you want more on justice, again, go back to, to Anthony's sermon where he talks about righteousness and justice. If you want a full treatment of it, look up, I don't even know if it's in print anymore, uh, Biblical Justice and Social Change by Stephen Mott is like just a huge deep dive biblical theology of justice in the midst of the world. Really, really good book. But what God is calling us to is justice, to love kindness and walk humbly with God. And what I was realizing again this week, if, if following Jesus and life with God is all on my terms, in my way, and there's no conflict within that at all, it's likely that I am not seeing and responding to scripture. And to quote Tim Keller, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. And I, that's something every single one of us need to be perpetually repenting of. And the wrestling match this week is how do I, how do we take this and not simply just hear, learn, but, but then change and live in light of this. What I think we're called to do and what I hope we do every single gathering on Sundays is that our primary goal in coming here is to see and worship God yet again. Rather than just learning some factoids, is that we would get a fresh vision of who God is throughout the entirety of the story. And in getting that vision, it would begin or continue to transform our lives in the real world. And Micah closes with a beautiful vision of God in chapter 7, verse 18 through 20. 
Hear, hear God's heart in this towards sinful people. It's so easy to read Micah and go, man, they were so messed up and I got it together. And it's just not that way. They have the same tendencies in the heart that we do. Again, it's a different time, it's a different place, but God is consistent. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. Passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. This is God, one who is quick to show compassion, grace, and forgiveness. A God who does work justice and does say there is consequence for sin, but is willing to take that on himself, and we see this in Jesus. That he takes upon himself the sins of the world and is willing to gift back to us in trusting and following him life. Full, abundant life. And it's in God's people receiving the life of Jesus and living into the life of Jesus that we're able to share and show, not just simply through our words, but through our deeds as well, who this Jesus is to the world. And again, that's not a life that's flattened. That's not a life that's stale. That's not a life that lacks oomph and fullness. It is a full, abundant, rich, grace-filled existence. I came across this quote it's from Thomas Howard, who I believe is Elizabeth Elliot's brother, who is a pastor. He said this, the incarnation, that is God becoming man in Jesus. The incarnation took all that properly belongs to our humanity and delivered it back to us redeemed. All of our inclinations and appetites and capacities and yearnings are purified and gathered up and glorified by Christ. He did not come to thin out human life. He came to set it free. All of the dancing and feasting and processing and singing and building and sculpting and baking and merrymaking that belong to us and that were stolen away in the service of false gods are returned to us in the gospel. And so that's the offer that God makes us day after day after day. Come to him, trust him, follow him, hope in him. And see how he changes and transforms things. And friends, in, in a small way, I think this is how and why our church exists. A church really that after two and a half years living through COVID, you know, from four elders that really don't have it all together. There's no master plan other than we just want to follow Jesus. And here we are. A church that gets to meet here and kids are being discipled and there's money to buy books and give it away. And it's just grace upon grace upon grace because what I'm seeing, and I hope that you don't, like, I don't want to be up here just chastising because I go, our church in such a large way is living into this. 
So many of you are practicing sacrificial generosity and upholding this work, and, and it's such a gift to see. Again, in a small way, a small people that are looking to pursue God in his way. Not, not perfectly, but when and where there's correction needed, we're looking to live a life of repentance from the leadership on down. Man, it's not that we're attempting to do this together, to follow the real Jesus in real life and allow him to speak and to minister and to uphold and to heal and to help us where we are as we are. And so we invite him into our real lives, into our real situations, and ask him to shape our heart where it's needed. Let's pray toward that end. And so God, we come to you this morning thankful that you are the God who sees, who speaks, who hears, who acts, who judges, and who ultimately saves and renews and restores. And so God, I pray for myself and my friends in this room today that you would help us to get a renewed vision of who you are and how you've worked in history. That whether we've become bored over time, whether our vision is is blurry because of our own sin, if we're worn out by sins that have been done against us and from the outside, that God, you would help our heads to be lifted to see who you are and what you are like in Jesus. You're not like us. You're so much more patient and kind and good and forgiving and helpful. And so I pray that we would come to you yet again with hearts newly surrendered, open to your, your correction and your guidance as we are and where we are. And so as we respond now, would you be gracious to keep that work going in our community that people might see you in us and hear the good news that we declare that there is a Savior, our good King, and his name is Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.